That's a good job, said Smokey the Bear. But it takes more than one junior forest ranger when so many people are careless. Be sure you're never responsible for this terrible destruction. So remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Here on the East Coast, I don't think a lot about forest fires and massive wildfires. Not the case when I was out on the West Coast recently, where drought and wildfire are a constant presence. Today, we're talking to an expert on forest management. And stick around after the episode for another example of sidelining science with Shreya Dravasala. It's wildfire season for the American West, and already large and destructive fires have forced evacuations and burned up acres in Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, California, and now Oregon, where this week's guest hails from. Wildfire watchers have warned that this year's blazes could set records, and the heads of the USDA and the Department of Interior have already briefed lawmakers to prepare them for a really bad one. How did we get to this point where wildfire season starts earlier, ends later, and features more intense fires than ever? Is there anything we can do to become more resilient to more frequent and damaging fires? To answer these and other questions on this hot topic, we invited an expert in forest management on today's show. John Bailey is a professor in the Department of Forest Engineering Resources and Management at Oregon State University. He's co-authored the book Silviculture and Ecology of Western U.S. Forests, along with dozens of research publications on forest fires and land management. He joined us to talk about how climate change worsens wildfires, how controlled burns can, counterintuitively, reduce damage from fires, and why Smokey the Bear was wrong about forest fires. So I'm here with Professor John Bailey out on the West Coast in Corvallis, Oregon. John, welcome to the Got Science Podcast. The first question I want to ask you is, what the heck is silviculture, and have I pronounced it correctly? You pronounced it very close. So silviculture is just the art and science of growing trees. Like agriculture is for crops, silviculture is for trees. And it's it's really at the core of, of forestry since our land management practices, even though we can think on large scales like we like we'll be talking about for wildland fire, we still manipulate the hillsides one tree at a time. Are forest fires different now than they were say twenty or forty years ago? It seems with climate change they're perhaps more intense or more frequent. Give me the, the lay of the land. Sure. And, and I think there's pretty widespread consensus that, yes, we're seeing more acres burning. Uh, the percentage that's burning at high severity is staying about the same. But if you have more acres burning in total, then you have more acres that are burning at high severity or uncharacteristically you know, relative to historically how we know fires burned through many of the Western landscapes. But, uh, you know, there, this has application for Eastern landscapes as well. The Pine Barrens, of New Jersey are fire-dependent forests, and the oak-hickory kind of complex in the hardwood forest has a real solid fire history associated with that. 
uh, the southeastern coastal plain longleaf pine forest is very analogous to the ponderosa pine forest of the west. So this is not only a western issue, and we can come back to that topic of why these large wildfires haven't been a big issue in the southeast, at, at least yet. So there's consensus that we're seeing uh, more acres burning in large fire events. Uh, that represents some ecological issues, but also you know, big socioeconomic issues as well. And here we can just think about the California fires and Santa Rosa and the millions to billions spent on suppression activities, but the trillions uh, of dollars that are going to go to rebuilding and recovery and the amount of damage that was done. And, and there we don't even necessarily fully understand how much damage was done. So why has it gotten worse? We can go back to the basics of just fire behavior. You just picture a triangle and the fire behavior triangle is based on topography because you know slope and the landform that is out there really influences fire. Fire spreads uphill. Uh, and that's just the physics and chemistry of fire. But we, you can't do a lot about topography. Topography is just the, the playground that fire is out there and that our land management practices are out on. There's climate. So topography and climate, day-to-day -day weather forms a, a climatic pattern that drives temperature, relative humidity, uh, and winds. Winds are one of the key issues. Uh, and it's pretty clear and pretty established now that our fire seasons are longer hotter, drier, and the, you know there's always wind out there, and so the probabilities are just higher that you get the conditions matched with an ignition that allows for a faster rate of spread. The third side of the triangle is fuels. You, know, you have to have the fuels to spread. All other things being equal, fire only follows the fuel, the unburned fuel. So you've described the forest as fuel. Can you explain that? Because I think most people think of fuel as the external thing that you put on something and right. then light a match or, or so, spark. So yeah, if you're thinking about your, your campfire or your wood stove, that is fuel that has been transported from you know some ecosystem mm -hmm. and brought to your controlled environment. So I, tell, I just remind folks that when you use the word forest or hillside, People just picture different things. It's actually the same thing in the mental picture, I believe, is the same in most people's mind. But in terms of what they really see and feel might be scenery, hiking, you know, skiing, other recreational things. Some people see it as clean water, you know, the watershed function that is, is so important. 80, 90% of the clean water in America comes from forested landscapes. Uh, they might see it as wildlife habitat if they're birders or hunters or, or those kinds of things. Uh, if you're in the timber industry uh, and a private landowner and you have kids you want to put through college, you see that same forest as timber and future money or your investment, the equivalent of your 401k. People see all these things and in fact the forest is all these things and when I look out there, now given my line of work, I see it as fuel <laughs> because it is all those things and also fuel and it's going to burn and yes we haven't chopped it down and split it up and feeding it into a wood stove. It burns in place as you know any of the six o'clock news programs will show you. It is fuel and as we look at that combination of 
topography, climate, and now fuel. There's more of it out there than really we've ever had. We've created forest types that have never existed before through our land management practices, one of which is fire exclusion. We've kept fire purposefully uh, out of the forest in many areas in the false belief that that was protecting and preserving the forest. So there's more fuel than we've ever had on many, many acres, most acres, and therefore those acres are more connected than they've ever been to one another, allowing this fire spread uphill, downwind, on very hot days, and, and all that kind of stuff. And that is what's driving the large acreages of uncharacteristic and undesirable fire that we have. Do you feel that you can connect climate change to increase in wildfires? Yes, you know, the, the actual weather data, year-to-year weather data, is pretty clear in terms of the new temperature record. Each year it's warmer. The actual length of the fire season, which is not only the weather conditions, but also deployment of resources and anticipation of uh, and tracking fuel moisture conditions and all that kind of stuff. The fire season out in the West is 30, 40, 50, 60 days longer than it was two and three decades ago. So all of that information is clear in addition to the additional acres of high severity fire, in addition to the amount of money and the amount of resources, the percentage of the Forest Service budget, all of that information for for people that want to track that down is available from the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho. What are the traditional forest practices that have been in place? And I know you are working on sustainable forest management practices, mm-hmm. but let's start with what's already in place, right. and then you can tell me about how you would change the management to... Make us more resilient yes. to future climate and wildfire. Those are typically the words that we use. And I think even before we talk about the history, we can talk about the prehistory uh, because of some of the lessons that that holds. I mean, you, know, you can't go back in time, uh, and we now have billions of people you know, on the planet, which is very different from our prehistory. But you know, that established a lot of the ecology and the adaptations that are out there and that we can, we can exercise now to create a more resilient future uh, for us. So our Native American ancestors and ancestors on the other part of the, the globe you know, regularly used fire to maintain the forest conditions that they wanted. And some of that uh, were their food and game crops and that kind of stuff and, and openness and travel corridors. This is the traditional ecological knowledge that we're assembling and improving every year. Medicinal plants. And I, I think part of it was also so that they would not live in fear of the hot, dry summers that we get every day, at least in the western United States. Uh, so it, it's very predictable to get the Diablo winds that burned Santa Rosa this past year. I don't think our Native American ancestors lived in fear of those winds, knowing that those winds were coming. They just prepared the fuel so that they could manage the impact that it was going to have on their own communities and their own resources. We haven't done as good a job. So then if we go to the history of Western settlement over the last 100 or 150 years in the West, for a while we picked up on some of that message of using fire uh, to manage the resources. But as we expanded our Western civilization with roads and railroads and buildings, wooden buildings, we suffered, our ancestors suffered enough losses from fire that the narrative changed to where fire, like wilderness, uh, was a little on the evil side. It was destructive. So the role of fire as a destroyer 
started to dominate uh, the narrative. Stephen Pine has written eloquently uh, on this topic. And that led to the emergence of a forest service culture, amongst others, uh, that were really geared around fire suppression. Smokey Bear was part of that message in popular media with Disney and Bambi. Uh, you know, fire is presented as a danger to Bambi, and the music is dramatic. Uh, there were propaganda posters around World War II that equate fire with Hitler and Mussolini and you know, all of the evil in the world and death even, you know, the four horsemen, you know, riding with, with fire. And fire, you know, does have an element of destruction to it, but fire is also a creator. And so I think the, the, the prehistory saw the balance between fire as a creator and fire as a destroyer. We lost our understanding of the creative power and the management uses of fire. So with the emergence of uh, the science of fire ecology, understanding that fire history and these ecological adaptations to fire, the role of fire in the natural landscapes and all, that really started to solidify 20, 30 years ago early in my career. Uh, and you know, I've been part of a, a much larger effort that builds our understanding of that. And my role uh, has been to try to actively translate that into forest management current sustainable forest management practices. As we move away from a history of logging, where you know we were interested in the logs and the economic value that they held, uh, now we can balance that also against more general harvesting practices, or maybe we could even call it fuel manipulation, because every harvesting practice, including logging, getting the, the big logs out of there, has implications on the fuel. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to the interview. So a follow-up question to when you were just saying that Native cultures used fire to prepare. I guess one question is, how do you burn certain areas to prepare without having it burn up everything else that you don't want burned? It's an excellent question. And part of it ties to choosing the conditions under which you burn. And so I want to come back to that. And part of it is having a fuel-limited managed landscape in which the fire cannot get out of control in a widespread so you case. could somehow create a barrier or yes. something, mm -hmm. and then you burn the part that you want, and yes. it doesn't. <clears throat> so there are many, landscapes have many natural barriers uh, to fire in terms of uh, ridge lines where fire is burning uphill, hits the top of the ridge, then it has to burn downhill. So it has to, most of the heat and physics is going back into areas where the fuel's already been consumed. So it just use, it loses a lot of its energy and that positive feedback and may even go out, may become endothermic rather than exothermic and, and just go out on its own. Uh, so our, our, our native ancestors used that kind of understanding of choosing the conditions under which you burn so that this year's fire, when it bumps up against last year's fire or the fire three years ago, runs out of fuel. And you connect that to the rivers and the lakes and changes in forest vegetation type and how fire spreads differently in grass than it does in shrubs, than it does in the forest. So I hear stories and read this tr traditional ecological knowledge 
uh, where when there's still snow on the ground in certain landscape positions, elevations, north-facing slopes, and all that kind of stuff, our native ancestors were burning on dry south-facing slopes to encourage grass production for game and a handful of medicinal plants that grew in those areas. And then as the fire season developed, even very hot, dry conditions, they had already burned the fuel off of these other areas. So those become the fire lines, the holding lines for subsequent fire. So it's really the the, um, pattern of doing this mm -hmm. year after year of kind of manipulating and moving where you're starting the fire. Think of a jigsaw puzzle in time and space because the the previous burns uh, and the conditions under which fuel regrows, how fast it regrows and what kind of fuel regrows, uh, varies how that puzzle piece becomes burnable again somewhere in the future. So as I'm understanding this story, we've become fearful of fire, so we don't want to burn anything, and then all of our fuel's building up and building up and building up. Yeah, the puzzle pieces get thicker, uh, start gluing themselves together into very big flammable pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we get an ignition during the really hot, dry conditions, it has a big hunk of the puzzle that it can that it burns through at once. So if I had a magic wand mm-hmm. and I said, okay, John, we're starting all over and you're going to run this show here, how would you manage things? Uh, so you know, we do we operate and do forestry within the context of social license, and that starts with the laws, but then also our own interpretations of those laws and the the training that we give our workforce and the interactions that they have with the public and all those kinds of things. You know, we haven't been doing as much land management over the last couple decades uh, as we could have, and that's just backlash from the logging days and the early parts of the environmental movement and the preservation movement. Uh, So a first step is to acknowledge that those wars are over, and we've got to put that behind us. There is a role of active management of our lands out there. We don't have to, the preservation model doesn't work in dynamic ecosystems. The science is clear on that. We've got to see this disruption that we've created in time and space and the the fuel bed that we have now and what subsequent wildland fire, what wildland fire so far has been doing to that. And it's pretty easy to see what subsequent wildland fire is gonna be doing to individual acres, but the larger landscape patterns. So the landscape ecologists are really worried about losing the landscape memory of these, these patterns of different forest types and different ecosystems on hillsides when wildfire just rolls through everything. Step one is just acknowledging that we have that issue, that the preservation model just doesn't work for dynamic ecosystems. It works small spatial scales and small temporal scales. Preservation is a great thing. I use the analogy of pickles. You know, we, we know that when we try to preserve pickles, you do it in small batches and they're good for a couple of years. Uh, so we have that acknowledgement and then get moving with active forest management you know, public and private lands with this new vision that, oh yeah, that's right, this is all fuel and wildland fire is going to be an issue because everything that we're doing in our normal course of business for timber, for fiber, for carbon, for recreation, for scenery, for wildlife habitat, for fisheries, all of that kind of stuff, we're motivated to do a certain amount of land management to meet the needs of our society. We've got to remember that it's also fuels to make sure that all that other stuff we're doing also has the mindset that, oh yeah, these are fuels. 
And so what that's going to translate to in reality is uh, getting some of the fuel mechanically off of the landscape and reintroducing fire in the form of prescribed burning and or generally opening up the window to actually use wildland fire when we get natural ignitions out there. When you say get rid of it mechanically, does that mean just remove it? Remove it just and you know make it into useful products where we can and from a carbon perspective in as long-lived products uh, as we possibly can. So what would an example be? Houses. Okay. Houses for the homeless, right? We have a affordable housing crisis emerging in America, or at least many parts of America. And yet we're sitting on this massive wave of fuel, which is building material. So as you were talking about it before, I was imagining the fuel being trees and all sorts of scrubby underbrush. Is that all part it of is the all, fuel? It all is all of, of that is. and the arrangement and the physical arrangement of that. Uh, so yes, a certain amount of it is, is not going to have any building material value, but it might have a biomass value you know, mm-hmm. for small community boiler plants for winter heat, summer electricity generation. The, the Scandinavians have wonderful models for you know, energy independence, uh, get away from fossil fuel uh, consumptions and all. Great. So we remove some of it, we burn some of it. What else can be done? You partner when we get the natural ignitions. So right now we get natural ignitions or careless human ignitions uh, during a full spectrum fire weather conditions. And in the lowest end of those, the coolest, most moist, less windy kind of conditions, it's really easy to go and put fire out. As a matter of fire, at the far end of that, fire just goes out by itself before we ever even get out there. Then we start getting into the part of the spectrum where it's just kind of, we fire folks talk about skunking. Fire is just kind of skunking around uh, out there. And that's doing a lot of ecological good. I think that's a lot of what our ancestors did with this very low intensity, slow rates of spread, very short flame lengths, flame heights, non-hazardous kind of burning, all in the lower end of that spectrum. But that's when we go and put them out because it's so easy to put them out. And so when we talk about you know, the, the fact that we suppress 98, 97% of fires, those are all the ones that we're putting out. The two and three, and maybe it's gonna to climb to 4% that we can't put out are under the hottest, driest, windiest conditions. And those conditions are getting more frequent and the probability of them encountering this fuel matrix that we've created has also increased. So you just run the numbers. We're going to have more and more fire. I mean, that, that is just inevitable. So the, how can you scale up, though, when you talk about our ancestors doing this in, I'm assuming, in small-scale areas mm-hmm. for a state? For the state of Oregon, how do you make that? That's a, a big change. Right, and that's where m- much of the research is these days because on an acre-by-acre acre basis, we know how to do these fuels treatments. We know how to connect them to carbon programs, timber programs, wildlife habitat programs, fisheries, stream protection programs. Uh, we know all that on an acre-by-acre acre basis. The big challenge is ramping up. If all of a sudden we handed this climatic and fuel condition to our ancestors 4,000 years ago, they'd be in big trouble because they would not have the resources to address this issue. You know, we at least have all these other interests uh, in our landscape and many more tools and techniques and, and science 
to be able to start getting at this issue, doing more of the burning down in this favorable part of the spectrum, uh, breaking up the fuel beds so that whenever we get the ignitions in the hottest, driest conditions, they don't have as far to go. You know, that's the only solution under those conditions. We're not going to have enough people. We're not going to have enough money. We're not going to have enough airplanes. We're just not going to be able to do anything about those conditions other than wait for the weather to change or have treated areas that it burns into that can give us some chance to put it out under those weather conditions, but we have to resist putting it out under the really favorable weather conditions. So that's a big cultural change. That said, this is still a monstrous issue that we created over a hundred years. It's taken us to develop this problem. So it's going to take decades to fix this problem. And so that we're going to have a period where we're trying to ramp up and scale up and tie fuels management to all the other things we do and maybe even elevate the role of fuels management. Do some, as on public lands we have been doing some of this, where we go in and do fuels management projects that have none of those other objectives tied to it. We just need it to get a fire break at the edge of town. And some of those are even paying off now uh, for that. Get fuels into the mix, elevate fuels treatments uh, to those ideas uh, for land management. But that's still only going to be thousands of acres when there's hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres that are now out of balance, out of their normal fuel matrix. So Wildland Fire is going to do a certain amount of this work for us. And so again, we come back to that issue of do we always just wait until the worst weather conditions when we have no other choice? Or do we let partner with wildfire to do this work in the tens and hundreds of thousands of acres scale when the conditions aren't so bad? Well, John, thank you for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest shady news from an administration willing to go to the mat in international negotiations about breastfeeding. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. This is a weird one, so I'm going to start with the players. There's the World Health Organization, which is affiliated with the United Nations. There's the annual World Health Assembly, the decision-making body of the WHO, where UN countries come together to set guidelines on nutrition and medicine. We also have Ecuador, a small South American country that depends on U.S. military and other aid. And then there's the United States, which is accumulating quite a track record of sidelining science in favor of corporate interests. Now here's what happened. At the World Health Assembly earlier this spring, all the hundreds of international delegates were ready to pass a simple resolution to encourage breastfeeding internationally as the science-based best way to keep infants healthy. Decades of research have proven that breast milk is healthier than formula for infants and babies. And while formula is an important and sometimes life-saving option for those who can't nurse or produce milk, it shouldn't be marketed as healthier or more economic. Ergo, this resolution should have been an easy one to pass. Ecuador brings up the resolution as planned. Other countries say aye or yes or hooray. Enter the United States. Instead of saying yes, our delegates said... Hey, can you take up the part about asking governments to promote, protect, and support breastfeeding? And also the part where policymakers are supposed to restrict the inappropriate promotion of foods to young children? All the other delegates said, hey, U.S., that makes no sense. 
Let's keep the measure as is. It's based on science and it's uncontroversial. And then the U.S. said, well, if you don't make our changes, we're going to start a trade war with Ecuador and we're going to withdraw our military aid. Which is a seriously overblown reaction to some science-based language in a World Health Assembly resolution on breastfeeding. If I had to guess, I'd say our delegates were protecting some corporate interests with deep pockets. For instance, the very well-funded formula industry, which includes corporate giants like Nestle. But that's just me guessing, because there's no evidence of big formula paying to unduly influence these proceedings, beyond our delegates' truly weird and anti-science behavior. Back to the story. Two whole days later, the resolution finally passed, amended slightly by the U.S., because our delegates lobbied so hard to change it. And every delegate at the assembly went home scratching their heads and wondering why science is so controversial for the United States. What I'm wondering is how this will play out here, when it's time for the federal government to update its dietary guidelines, which this year will include legally mandated guidance for pregnant people, infants, and toddlers. My colleague Jenna Reed wrote a blog about her fears for the process based on the U.S. performance at the World Health Assembly. She says, and I quote, The willingness of the U.S. to aggressively push for its positions by employing threats of trade restrictions does not bode well for the dietary guidelines. The U.S. government cannot allow the makers of infant formula to pressure them into weaker dietary guidelines that go against the best available science, end quote. UCS will be keeping a close eye on the process of setting these guidelines, and we hope that they will be based on the best available science and not the most appealing stack of lobbying money. Anything else is sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Professor John Bailey. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dervasula. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.